people from the South, that is, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and such, know of the crunchy treat fried okra. Once you've had it, you're hooked. And as good as fried okra is, there are loads more ways to cook it. Yeah, there's that slime thing, but that's part of the package. Cooked well and combined strategically, it ain't so bad. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 156. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. College football season is here, and that means tailgating is here. Score points with flavor in your queue or your chip dips with spice mixes and blends from Savory Spice. Use my affiliate link culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice and zip up your game. Okra, a veritable staple of the South. If most people know two things about okra, one is that it is maybe the best fried food ever, and the second is it's slimy. I'll get to the slimy part in a bit. Okra is pretty easy to grow, next season. As a subtropical or tropical plant, it likes it hot. What I'm finding here in the cool nights, which are getting down below 60 degrees, is the plant leaves are getting a bit spotty. That is, yellow spots are appearing. That means the plant isn't happy. During the day, it gets full sun And that makes a happy okra plant. A happy okra plant makes okra. And more okra makes a happy wife. She is a southern girl and she likes her fried okra. More on that too later. Okra has a few varieties. The variety I've seen on seed racks in nurseries and grocery stores is Clemson Spineless. And we're going to overlook the Clemson part in the the footballness, and just keep going. A look at a seed webpage will show a whole lot more. Haas Tools published a video about checking productivity of a few other varieties of okra, including cowhorn, red burgundy, silver queen, and star of david. Now, I've only heard of red okra. I'm told it turns green when it's cooked, but the pictures and video show a very pretty and very red plant. The flower of okra is also really pretty, and part of that owes to okra being related to cotton and hibiscus. The part of okra we eat, the pods, grows from the main stalk, where the leaf and the stem meet. In some cases, the leaf will turn into another stalk and also produce okra. Now, 
I grew okra the first time a few years ago in Tallahassee. I had had only the main stem. Uh, that then was the Clemson spineless, which is also what I'm growing, but I've noticed something different. I think there were about 16 plants, and they did okay. Those few plants grew to about 4 feet high and produced enough okra for a few good batches of fried okra. Now, I was the chef of a retirement community in Tallahassee, and some residents had raised bed gardens outside of their rooms. The okra in those beds were giant. I don't know what variety it was or if there was a difference in soil, but the plants were huge and the pods were big as plantains. The okra I'm growing here is also Clemson spineless and is making those side stems, which didn't happen in Tallahassee. I don't know why. Learning what okra wants is tricky, which really means I wasn't paying attention and didn't give it what it wanted the first time I planted it here in Oregon. Up here in the high desert, it ends up getting plenty hot and is very dry, but in spring, it gets downright chilly at night, and okra cares not for that. Doesn't like shade either. I have a nearly flat roof on one portion, which is a perfect place for my planters. Perfect because it's out of the way of the dog who will eat the plants and the dirt and the planters, but also perfect because it gets full sun. My three okra plant testers are doing very nicely. So let's talk about sowing the seeds. Since most places are cool at night, okra is best started in some kind of seed system with a warming pad under the pots and a grow light to keep the soil warm and to encourage germination. Now that's how I started the okra here. In Tallahassee, I just sowed the seeds into the ground. I didn't soak the seeds, but some folks think that's necessary. I can't say if any of my plants appear worse off for not soaking, and since they all germinated, one did die after it sprouted, I have no real opinion on the usefulness of that. The University of Arkansas does recommend soaking the seeds and removing any seeds that float after a day. They say those seeds are unviable. The tricky part for gardeners is knowing when the last frost will occur. Here in this part of Oregon, most people don't put plants in the ground until around June 1st. Now, that may seem late to some folks, but a random freeze is not uncommon even in late May. The flower on okra is stunning. Well, at least I think so. The petals are light yellow and the inside part of the flower is a dark purple. Okra flowers have both male and female parts in the same flower and are mostly self-pollinating. Tomatoes are similar with flowers that are self-pollinating, and with those, the tomatoes, I give the flower stems a quick and rapid tap, 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 tap to loosen the pollen in the open flowers to ensure, or at least 
improve the possibility of pollination. Okra flowers are not open for very long, but feel free to gently tap them to distribute the pollen. I have seen some okra flowers not get pollinated, and what ends up is a little teeny dead stick and a missed okra opportunity. Well, that's just sadness. Once the wee okra starts growing, they grow fast. You may see one about two inches in length and decide it's not quite ready, but by the next morning, it may be too big. It's pretty crazy how fast they grow. The fellow in the Haas Tools video mentioned the cowhorn variety as one variety which can be picked and eaten larger than the other varieties. He also said the Star of David variety is the best for fried okra, so I'm going to have to find that for next year. Fresh okra doesn't keep long in the cooler. Three to four days may be the longest, and then they start to show signs of age, which is they get uh, a little puckery. You can start to sort of see the vein, the ribs more, and they, they get a little darker in color, and they look a little, well, flaccid. The good news is they can be eaten in a variety of ways, so even with only a few pods, at least a side dish can be created. Now, if you've come this far and said, yeah, that's great, but there's that slime, well, yes. Yes, there is. And, at least for fried okra, the slime's kind of necessary. It's also good for you. I'll um, circle back to that. For fried okra, I cut off the stem end and add that to the compost pile. Then cut the pods into about half inch lengths. Soak the cut okra in water for about 10 minutes. Now you can go 15 or 20 and nothing terrible is going to happen. But the soaking part is important. The water makes the slime slimier. Now if you're saying, why do I want that? Well, here's why. Breading the okra needs the sliminess to hold the breading powder. So, the breading part can be a little bit tricky, but mostly it can be a lot bit messy. The breading I use is three cups of flour and one and a half cups of cornmeal for two pounds of okra. Now, you'll probably end up with leftover breading, but you need more than... <laughs> you need more than you need to make sure everybody gets coated. Whatever you have left over, just sift that, uh, throw out the uh, bits in the sifter, and save the uh, breading for next time. And put that in a Ziploc bag, label it, and put it in the freezer. Now, right away, there is a cornmeal issue because there is both fine cornmeal and coarse cornmeal. Now, if you want to get really southern, you could use grits, which is coarse, but it's also white. That's another show. It doesn't change how the, the coarse grits uh, and the coarse cornmeal will taste the same when you fry it. The difference is, what do you want in your okra? And it's kind of up to you. The fine cornmeal, I think, makes a, uh, a nicer coating. So I've played with versions of it, and I sort of lean toward the fine cornmeal. 
Both seem to work just fine, but that's your preference. To get the okra breaded, you'll need a gallon zip-top bag with the flour cornmeal mix inside, seasoned, of course, a large slotted spoon, and a quarter or a half-sheet pan with the rack that fits inside the pan. Now, the process is take the spoonful, take the slotted spoon, and depending on how big it is, a scoop or two of the okra. Lift it out of the water, and it's going to be all this mucilaginous goo dripping off. You won't get all of it off, but the vast majority of it will stop. And with some, some urgency, put that spoonful of mostly stopped dripping okra pieces into your breading bag. And another one, if it's, if it's convenient, then it will hold it. Zip the top of the bag closed. And then, with, with some carefulness, because in case you didn't zip it closed, you don't want to bread the whole kitchen, including you, kind of gently shake the contents of the bag so that everything gets coated. Make sure that the pieces of okra, maybe the cut ends, are sticking together. So break them apart so every piece gets completely coated. And let it sit in the breading mix for 10 seconds just to make sure that the the the, the slime the goo is is being absorbed by the flour to make sure that your okra is breaded open the bag up and with your hand sort of pick the pieces up shake them gently in your hand to let the loose part of the cornmeal flour mix fall away and then place them on the rack on the sheet pan. Now you can place them close together, they can be touching on, a, on one layer. What we want to avoid is making piles of breaded okra because that's not going to work well for us. It's going to end up unbreading itself and for our next step it's going to cause more problems than it fixes. So one, one layer of okra, nice and tight, they can be friends, they all know who each other is, and if you need another pan, do that. If you don't have another pan, leave it in the breading mix until you fry that and then continue the next step. So the next step is take that sheet pan of one layer of breaded okra. You can fry it as is, but I like to put mine in the freezer for about 10 to 15 minutes because it just helps the whole cooking thing. The other advantage to putting them in the freezer is after you've cooked and eaten your fill, like that's possible, what you have left in the freezer on the sheet pan can now easily be put in, now after it's got to be frozen solid, be put into small zip top bags, label and date that, and now you have breaded okra for the next time you want breaded okra. Fry your okra. Yeah. Now, I have a deep fryer. If you don't have a deep fryer, uh, on a stovetop with a cast iron pan would probably be ideal for the heat distribution, maybe an inch or so of oil. Uh, I use peanut oil in my fryer, which is not the idealest of oils. Lard would be the best oil, but avoid, if you can, the seed oils. And if you, if you don't have an allergy to peanut oil, that would be my preferred 
suggestion for oils to use. Uh, and about 350 degrees for a nice, even browning and thorough cooking. It is possible to replace the all-purpose flour with a gluten-free flour mix. Now, there are, I don't even know how many brands of gluten-free flour mixes on the market. And some of them come with xanthan gum mixed in, and some of them do not. For this specific purpose, fried okra, I'm not a fan of the xanthan gum. Trader Joe's does make a gluten-free flour mix without the xanthan gum, and that works pretty well. And it's mostly several varieties of rice flour and potato flour, and that comes out nice and crisp. Now, there's one thing that's interesting about gluten-free flour, and that is it doesn't turn the same brown in the fryer like all-purpose flour, all flour does. I don't necessarily know why that is. It might be the protein ab uh, change uh, as opposed to more starch, but they do get plenty crispy, and that's really what we want out of this anyway. So uh, gluten-free can work. Make sure, of course, season them when they come out, and you're good to go. Uh, it seems that in history, Thomas Jefferson grew okra. Now, I don't know what kind it was, but it's interesting that he did it. No doubt okra came over to the States through the slave trade. There's a lot to find out about that if that interests you. What interests me is Escoffier, the French chef, in his La Guide Culinaire book lists four recipes for okra, which reads gombos, which sounds a lot like gumbo. Now, there is a paragraph of introduction to the okra section, and it reads this way, quote, This vegetable is much used in the Americas and the Far East, but is not in general use in Europe, despite attempts to popularize it, end quote. Now, I don't know why, but that seems curious to me. The first three recipes he presents are basically the same. Blanch the okra in well-salted water, drain, and do something else to them. Now, that's pretty common for a scoffier. Do this thing, then do something else. The blanching part is interesting since we know that water makes the slime increase. The last recipe calls for dried okra, and I've never seen that, and I don't know what it is. I didn't even know it was the thing. But here he has a recipe for it. One of the, of the three recipes really seems worth trying. So blanch and drain the okra. Now, he would trim most of the stem end off, but leave the capsule intact so that the seeds pocket doesn't get the water inside. And I guess either you eat that part or the delicate eater would cut that off with a knife. But anyway, he's leaving the, the okra intact. Blanch it and drain it. Uh, place in a heavy pan with some onions, which have been cooked in butter, and some blanched squares of lean bacon. Moisten with a little water and cook slowly. For service, arrange the pieces of bacon on the plate in a circle and place the okra in the center. Now, I don't know that I would go through the plating ritual, but that 
sounds delicious. Okra is rich in the same way eggplant can be rich. For that dish above, which is Escoffier recipe 4,112, gambos et sorry, I killed the French, I would slightly color the onions for sweetness to contrast the richness of the okra, and instead of water, I would use a roasted chicken or a veal stock. Uh, it is entirely possible Escoffier thought of coloring the onions, and in the finished dish, that's exactly how they would come out. That slime we needed for the bedded okra can, for some people, be off-putting and wouldn't be made less by blanching in salt and water, but there is a solution. Acid. Now, I've read some recipes which read to soak the cut okra in vinegar or lemon juice water for some number of minutes. That seems like a waste of minutes and an addition of water that's unnecessary and just hampers the cooking process. In Uncommon Fruits and Vegetables, Elizabeth Schneider writes, quote, Let me tell you there is no difference whatsoever except a tad less flavor when okra has been soaked in water acidulated with vinegar, whether for 10 minutes or 2 hours, end quote. So, don't bother. Instead, add the acid as an ingredient and for a flavor that also works to mitigate the slime, which is tomatoes. Okra and tomatoes sautéed together is spectacular. I add some sliced red onions, sauté the lot in a little bit of bacon fat, and add some bacon near the end, you know, bacon. I like my veggies hammered, which means cooked until done. I'm finished with that French al dente silliness. Well-cooked veggies have more flavor, and that's what I want. The thinner you slice your okra, the faster it cooks and cooks too well done. Also, that helps mitigate some of the slime. For a tomato and okra dish, I would cut the pods into 3 8 inch sized pieces or so, not bigger than half an inch. Start them in a pretty hot pan with bacon fat and get a bit of color on the cut side. Add the onions and cook until the okra starts to noticeably wilt. Add the tomatoes, lower the heat, and let the veggies sort of stew all together. Now, if you're listening to me tell you this and you're saying, well, hang on a minute there, bub. What kind of tomatoes do I use? Well, good question. Uh, if you're using cherry tomatoes, there's two things you can do. One is you can cut them in half because you want to have the access of the water out of the tomato to be the liquid that helps finally cook everything. And I know we talked about water and slime, but remember, tomato juice is going to have acid to it, which is cutting back on the slime. Um, the other thing you can do, which is a few more steps of work, but it makes a big, big difference in the final appearance of the dish and also in the fussiness, is um, lightly score the blossom end of the tomato with a knife and just make a little X there, then blanch them in boiling salted water for 10 
to 30 seconds. The riper they are, the quicker they'll peel. So that's what we're doing. We're dropping these scored tomatoes, cherry or grape or big ones, into some boiling water, taking them out of the water, putting them into an ice bath to stop the cooking, which one, doesn't burn our fingers because now the tomato isn't hot, and that also helps the skin release from the tomato. Tomato skins, well, it's compost. I mean, I don't care for them. If you like them, eat them. Um, but then this blanched tomato for cherry or grape tomatoes or pear tomatoes, leave them whole. For a big tomato, cut it into a dice. Well, whatever you want. The bigger the piece of tomato, the, the changes the okra to tomato ratio as you bite it. Oh, tomatoes cut the size of the okra. They may cook down more so you get more sauce. Uh, so it's like okra with tomato sauce. It's it, it, Do what you want. If you don't know what you want, do some experimentation. I find that okra is perfectly happy without herbs. I know that sounds weird. The only two I can think to add to an okra dish are savory and mint. Now, the mint and tomatoes are great friends. And... Because there are some uses for okra in Far East dishes and Mediterranean dishes, a lot of those flavors work well with mint. And savory just seems pleasant enough that she would work with just about everybody. Now, of course, your tastes are different, and you may find that rosemary or thyme are just fine. Oh, okra can be grilled. Now, like Escoffier was talking about leave the pod intact, cut the stem end close to the edge of the pod, but leave the whole thing intact, uh, and then lightly olive oil, and I just did salt and pepper, coarse, uh, kosher style salt, but I don't use the blue box stuff, uh, and then pepper, and then on the grill, I did medium-ish heat, so I didn't get really charred outside of the pod, but you can. I did. I went for lower and slower because I wanted to see what happened. Um, so just extra virgin olive oil, salt, and pepper, uh, and then on the grill, and I kept turning them. And it took maybe ten minutes to get uh, a good wilty okra. One of them split a little bit, I guess, because the moisture inside had to get out, and that's that's fine. Um, not slimy at all. Really good flavor. Now, I'm told by a fellow who gave me this idea that if you grill it on high enough heat, you can get a little bit of, uh, of a crunch on the outside from the grill marks. Well, my timing was off, and I didn't get them off the grill and onto the plate fast enough to get a little bit of a crunch and a texture difference, contrast. But I was very pleased with what I got and certainly would be willing to do it again. The second to last way I want to mention today for okra is pickled okra. Now, the smaller pods are the tenderer pods, uh, and even on the Clemson spinalis, the smaller is more tender. Okra pods will grow woody. That's what they do. No amount of pickling will alter that. So, pickle young okra for what I think is a much more pleasant eating experience. I just, 
I didn't care for woody, bitey, just it, that too big of okra was not, I didn't like it. Okra can take the heat, spicy, if you want zippy hot pickles. But the thing here, as with the tomatoes, in the acid, is the acid mitigating some of that slime? But the thing here, as with the tomatoes, is the acid is mitigating some of that slime. There are scores of recipes online or in cookbooks you have at home. Just make certain you follow good, safe, sanitation, and canning practices. Acidic, anaerobic environments, just like canned acid things, tomatoes, tomato sauce, are a good place for botulism to thrive. That's one experience nobody wants. Okay, there is one giant okra left in the room to discuss. Let's take a moment out for words from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast, and we'll get to that. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. In Swahili, the word for okra is gumbo. Now, it turns out that there's lots of languages that either have gumbo as the word for okra or something that is longer and looks like gumbo for okra. There are derivations of plenty about how to cook a gumbo and what constitutes a gumbo. I'm sticking with the classic made re-famous by Paul Prudhomme, the one with the dark roux. Now, ghee or clarified butter is my preferred fat for a dark roux. It just tastes good. All-purpose flour is fine. Now, you can use duck fat, chicken fat, goose fat, lard, beef fat, anything. I would recommend staying away from shortening your seed oils, but there's a plethora of fats to use. Butter is the easiest. The key to a dark roux and I'm talking nearly black, but don't burn it, is low and slow. In an oven, so cook the roux in an oven on lowish heat for a long time. Think about doing a smoked brisket. It's kind of the same thing. Now, you will need, I think, probably an, two hours to get this done right. Gumbo can be said to just be a thick stew. Say that in Orleans way, and you will probably be corrected. Gumbo, as most people know it, needs a few things. Okra is one of them, but some recipes omit that. Can you imagine such a thing? Sassafras is another ingredient that goes by the name gumbo filet. Andouille sausage is important, and so is that dark roux. The cooking of the roux is, as mentioned, time-consuming, but the time is worth the reward. Since it is a recipe that has so many fans and authors, 
Finding an authentic recipe for gumbo simply isn't possible. Gumbo is known in Orleans as a combination of European cultures and local Louisiana Indians and oral tradition. So, we do the best we can to our preferences. I like the flavor of the very dark roux and the combination of the gumbo filet, which adds flavor and is a thickener, as well as the okra, which also, because of the goo, is a thickener. Now, let's focus on the roux a minute. The roux, I think, is best finished in the oven in an oven-proof metal pan. Started on the stovetop. Now, this means not a, not a um, what do you call that? Uh, not not stem, oh, Teflon-ish, or whatever that stuff is. No no coating, just you know, real pan. Start on the stovetop with equal parts uh, by volume of butter and flour. Melt the butter or ghee and stir in the flour until it's well incorporated and place that into a 250 degree oven. Now the goal here is brown flour, but slowly brown. One characteristic we're going for is the nutty brown flavor that comes from low and slow. You can get a dark roux on the stovetop in about five minutes, but what you miss is the flavor development of that slow toasting of the flour, which cannot be hurried. It just must be done slow to get that... Man, once you once you've had it, it's like, oh my god, that's that's what it is. That's how they did that. They used a dark roux. Stir the roux every half an hour or so, just to make sure it's getting mixed up. And you'll see that the bottom of the pan uh, will be darker than the stuff on the top. So mix it all together. Uh, it's best to do this a day or two ahead of time, since it's not going to go bad sitting out at room temperature, and just to make sure, even though the oven is only 250 degrees, roux is kind of like napalm. It sticks and it doesn't wipe off easy, so it will burn. So careful, Have a, if you need a hot mitt, wear a hot mitt. If you have hot pads, cover your arm. If you have long sleeves, pull them down. Uh, just don't get burned. Take time, be careful, stir it around. It's gonna be like this, like it's gonna be like stirring clay. It's gonna be really hard to stir at first. So once you start moving it around, then it turns into that um, oh that fun sand stuff that kids like to play with. You can move it around and you know anyway, just be careful. The proper procedure for thickening a liquid with roux is one of them is hot, one of them is relatively cold. Now if you have boiling liquid, room temperature by comparison, is cold. So boiling stock, boiling soup, or boiling water, or milk, or whatever, and a room temperature roux is a sufficient hot-cold difference that it will thicken properly. And what that means is that we will avoid those telltale granny lumps. Nobody wants lumps. Not even at Thanksgiving. We love a granny, but lumps are no good. As I talk about in my cookbook, flavor building in one-pot meals is key. And since gumbo is mostly a one-pot meal, that's what we're going to do. 
This is done, flavor building, by adding ingredients in a strategic order. For our gumbo, flavor building is critical to get everything out of all of those ingredients. Now, andouille is a pretty popular ingredient in gumbo and offers some level of the expected heat. Now, I would brown the slices first and let the fat come out. When the sausage is browned, remove it and add the trinity of vegetables, onions, celery, and green bell peppers. Cook that until you smell the aroma, then add the garlic. Cook that until you smell the garlic aroma, then add the sausage back to the pot, the slurry of spices, and cook that until you smell the aroma. Then add the tomatoes in the stock and bring that to a boil. Now here's, this is a key point. Up to this point, we've been cooking, 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 adding stuff. The more stuff we're adding, we're lowering or keeping the temperature of the pan kind of low, which is helping ensure we're not burning the very valuable flavor bits on the bottom of the pan, but we're developing that dark color and caramel, which is where all the flavor is going to come from. Once we add the uh, stock and the tomatoes, now we've added water. Water boils at 212 or less, and now caramelization is impossible. Well, yeah, I know my art reaction, that's another show. Um, once your stock comes to the boil, take a whisk, a piece of your roux, and whisk that in. And whisk it until you'll see that there'll be some lumps. Now you haven't got to whisk urgently, but slow and steady, and the as the butter melts in the heat of the stock, the flour granules will begin to do their starch-absorbing liquid thing, and then once the lumps are gone from the first edition, add the next edition, add the next edition until you've used the amount of brew you need for the amount of stock you have, and then let that cook. Now, for every gallon of liquid in the pot, use about a cup and a half of dark roux. That may seem like a lot compared to other soups you've made, but brown roux, which really means caramelized flour, thickens less than unbrowned flour, so more is required for the same amount of liquid. If you used a cup and a half of white roux for a gallon, you're going to make, well, it won't be enjoyable. Cook the gumbo for about an hour or so to get the full thickening of the flour and development of the flavor. Now, in a separate pan, saute the okra until tender and add that to the gumbo. And at this point, add the cooked meat with chicken, duck, raw seafood, shrimp, and or oysters, whatever the protein you have. Uh, bring that back to the boil, check for seasoning, and dinner is served. Now, rice is a traditional accompaniment to gumbos. Since it's just white starch, I now avoid such things. A big bowl of gumbo is just fine. You're certainly welcome to have as much risotto rice as you prefer. Um, go nuts. I have dabbled with gluten-free thickening and it doesn't play the same way as wheat. It is possible to make a roux of rice flour and butter and brown the starch. I don't know the amounts needed to thicken the gallon of liquid. 
What I've discovered is most gluten-free flours work better as thickeners when they're used as a slurry. For keto folks, okra is a good vegetable for you. Okra is high in fiber, high in fiber, and seems to be effective in managing blood blood sugar and insulin sensitivity. Now, on to the plants in our garden. I have noticed on my plants some ants. Not too many. It turns out they are probably eating the aphids, so they can stay. However, in places with fire ants, they can be a problem to the okra flowers. In Tallahassee, fire ants pretty much destroyed my plants by eating the flowers. Since fire ants are related to bees, and I'm allergic to bees, I just resigned myself to the crop being over. Now, if you're saying, come on, just ants. No, no, no. Fire ants are quite pesky pests and really aren't to be trifled with. There's a way to get them, but that's, that's another thing. Try okra as a sautéed veggie with corn or green beans or roasted bell peppers or more tomatoes. As summer is ending, check your farmer's market and grab what you can. Small okra for pickling and the medium to slightly larger medium for eating and frying. Uh, bread them up, store them in the freezer, uh, make your pickles, and you've got okra all winter long. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put a PDF of the basic gumbo recipe I was discussing on, on the show notes page, colonialibertarian.com slash 156. I'll also add a link to my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meals You Can Make. With cool weather coming, there are some great one-pot dinners to make. The cowboy fireplace beef dinner makes enough to feed a small army. If you like what I'm creating, please support the show at culinarylibertarian.com support. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. If you have a show suggestion or a food or ingredient topic that interests you, send me an email to podcast at culinarylibertarian.com. Have a good week. See you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.